0: podcast today's guest is actually a dear friend of mine lauren perinello in unpacking her personal story we learn about how she pivoted as life through her many curveballs how she carves out boundaries and moments of peace in her life how her service-minded heart influenced the decisions and her ability to speak up and speak out for justice in her world now let's take a listen to lauren's story Thank you so much for joining in on this podcast. For the audience that doesn't know who you are, could you just share a little bit about yourself, what you like to do, your passions, and um, the things that make you you?
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so my name's Lauren. I'm the oldest of four kids, so I take my big sister slash mom role very seriously with my friends group. Um, I'm a curse word connoisseur, so I've uh, already been told we need to rein that back in for this podcast, which is fine, but that's definitely a facet of me being in the Army. Um, What else do I do? I am really bad about walking into stores and getting what I need. I normally leave with like a plant or something I didn't have on the agenda. So right now we're up to 10 houseplants, probably still growing. I love music. Um, I actually started college as a music performance major and then switched. So that's something that I'm trying to dive back into. I speak Arabic. Um, I'm teaching myself Italian and ASL, and I'm really passionate about what's going on in the world right now and calling white people on their BS daily.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I think all of us have gotten really into plants. I've never had a green thumb, but so far I have. Four plants and one um, flower, an orchid that's somehow still alive. So I think in this quarantine we are learning new skills that we didn't have, and they're just so um, life giving. So I think that makes people happy when they're stuck in their home all the time.
1: Oh, for sure. I started quarantine with, um, I think I had three. <laughs> now, <in> the course <laughs> of this quarantine. I found this site called Modern Garden and then Bloomscape, and they just shipped the plants to your house so I didn't have to leave, wow. um, which is wonderful. They're wonderfully, like, they come in peak condition, uh, but the issue is is that my card is linked to my account, so I'll just hit pay, and it's like, I didn't <laughs> actually swipe my cards. I don't feel like I spent money until I get that bank statement It's like, yo, girl. I'm like, ooh. Let's, yes, let's put that, a pause on that.
0: That is so dangerous. Um, so you talked about being a music major in college and then pivoting. Um, tell us a little bit about your career path. So you started as a music major and pivoted. And so how did your career or life goals change from there?
1: Yeah. So I, in my last two year of high school, only took music classes. I was in marching band, wind ensemble, jazz band. It's funny because now in my job, people are like, you weren't in marching band. I'm like, No, yes, I was. I was like that kid. Um, And I loved it. So when I went to college, I knew that I wasn't at the performance level I needed to be to be a performance major. But I was thinking like music education or music theory. I was really good in those aspects. And then I realized, hey, there's no money for college. We need to be able to eat. So I pivoted my goal of being either a vocal major or into the education side of the house with a focus in jazz to international studies and anthropology. I have always been, just because of my parents' military service, like I, by the time I was 18, had moved 26 times. Um, I lived in Korea for two years, and up until I was 16, that's the longest I had lived anywhere. So I was always interested in other cultures, languages, the dynamics, all of that. So when I went to college, I saw that uh, Towson University had an Arabic program, and I was like, oh, yes. So very quickly shifted my pivot, um, and a lot of that was catalyzed by me deciding that I was going to jump into the Army ROTC program, see if I could get on scholarship, and most of that was spurred by me being at this crossroads of not knowing what I should do with my life and what I needed to do. So it seemed like it would give me a buffer, both my parents were in, so I made that jump, um, and then I ended up getting active duty scholarship, and that kind of became the tunnel vision goal for me for the next four years, so I got really deep into all of these different intricate systems of the world, and both in military and civilian life, and how they kind of intertwine, and then my junior year, I broke my back, so I was in a training exercise, the army had already sent me to Thailand, I had already worked abroad for them, and came back and blew out L4, L5, S1 all the way through. And a surgeon at Johns Hopkins, in a very shortened version of the story, um, told me that he refused to operate on me. Because if he did, uh, the chances of me ending up in a wheelchair were 99%. And at this point, I couldn't get myself dressed. I was sleeping on the floor because I couldn't lift my leg high enough to climb into bed. And I was very depressed. You know, as grateful as I was to my battle buddies um, coming over and helping me put my shoes on, I was 21, um, and having people come to your place in the morning to make sure that you can go to class in something other than flip-flops, it was a little, you know, it was a little bit of an ego check. You know, I'm still grateful for those people, but it was definitely a a whole new dynamic. You know, I had the floor ripped out from underneath of me and what I thought I was going to do. I was top of my class. I was guaranteed deployment. Um, I knew that I was probably going to end up at a language school and an intel and I was very okay with that. I was very ready to do my civic and civil duty to my country. Um, but my purpose and my goal for being in the military wasn't to be a combat um, a combat initiative. I wanted to go over and do the civil affairs work. So teaching the units that might be deployed, what are the mannerisms used in the Middle East, right? If you put your hand out in the United States, that means stop. But in other countries, that means to go faster, So those nuances that get lost, that end up with a lot of casualties and a lot of accidents that unfortunately the civilians here aren't really privy to. Most civilians have no idea what actually takes place um, when you're deployed out. So making sure that those atrocities happen less frequently, but also to be the liaison between people and the military and making sure that people were safe, that was really my entire purpose of going, is I seemed to have this knack for languages, and I wanted to do my part to make sure that people there were safe, right? Um, And not just our troops, but also the civilians on the ground. So when I broke my back, it was this sense of, oh, my God, like I put all my eggs in one basket. I didn't intern anywhere because I didn't have time. Now I can't walk. Um, And because I didn't have my top secret clearance, I wasn't able to access contractor jobs or government jobs that would have been the civilian capacity of my military Um, endeavor so it was it was rough you know I remember very vividly my Arabic professor pulling me aside and telling me look like you can hardly stand you can get barely get to class like you and I will just will do your lessons on the side you need to make sure you're okay I was on pain meds for all of maybe two days um, and I remember like trying to pay attention in one of my classes and I Felt something wet on my arm and I realized I was drooling and it was so embarrassing, but more so like I didn't feel that. Like I wasn't comprehending anything. I was a zombie. Wow. So flushed on my meds. Um, I literally just survived off of hard-headedness. <laughs> and I literally just put my head down, I was like, I have to figure this out. But more than once I had people who had to pick me up to get me upstairs or to put me into bed. Or to even when I broke my back, you know, it was on a training exercise. My first sergeant carried me off the track like a child when you put them to bed. And I remember being so angry that this grown man picked me up like I was a toddler. Like even in the extreme amount of pain I was in, I was livid. I remember arguing with him like, Sergeant Q put me down. He's like, no. And I'm like, no, put me down. He's like, absolutely not, Lauren. We were going to the hospital. And I was like, ugh. I was irate about it because one, like not only did I just lose my mobility, but my identity at that time was so wrapped up in what I could do for others. I wasn't really Mm. able to focus on what I needed to do for myself. And at that point, it was just survive and get my mobility back.
0: Yes, let me just stop you there. Okay, so that is a great quote. So many of us have an identity that's relational to what we provide to others. And sometimes- that is empowering, but we also have to recognize who we are outside of those roles. And uh, I mean, this is so incredible to you. You've pivoted twice. Right now, you're telling you're telling us your story, and you've pivoted twice. The first pivot was um, intentional. You chose to do that out of financial necessity and a responsibility for yourself and your family. But the second one was completely unintentional. You did not ask for it. You did not want it and now you're having to shift from the service mindset and your relationship with your job and who and what you provide to society and to others. And then being on the receiving end of that service is really hard, especially those of us that are very much service minded. Sometimes we lack the ability to receive that gift of service as well. Um, So I wanted to ask you um, in that moment of like anger, sadness, self-pity, probably, and having to be on the receiving end of so many acts of charity, how did you start to recreate or revision what your identity was outside of those goals and that tunnel focus that you had?
1: Oh, man. I mean, I went through a couple very pivotal identity shifts in the two years that I was really, really, really vastly limited by my mobility. Um, you know, when I first broke my back, I couldn't walk for more than 15 minutes. I was working at a fight facility in Columbia. And I remember like, I could walk and give a tour around the facility, but 20 minutes in, I couldn't feel anything hips down on my left arm. And I would be stuck sitting until I regained feeling. And it's that immobility and that lack of faith, a lot of it was I had just, I had kind of in high school given up my identity as an athlete. Um, I focused solely on the music part and then obviously found my athleticism again through PT tests. And I did some boxing at Towson and then now I'm back to square one. I can't walk. Um, I went through this phase where I was very riddled with body dysmorphia and my way of getting back because PT and, chiropractic care and the meds from the doctors and the surgeons that I saw weren't helping. I wasn't able to move the way that I needed to move. And so I went through this phase where I thought, okay, I've never been little. And now all of a sudden people are praising me for, oh my God, you're so little. This is so cute. You look so good. And I got caught up in that for probably six months where I was just, all I could see was, how little and accepted I was to be little finally, right? I have a very fiery personality, um, definitely hard-headed. And so that sometimes would get some pushback in the way that I conversate with people, especially in college, because a lot of people aren't used to people being so blunt, (laughs) at least not in 2011. It didn't seem as surface level as it is now. Um, And all of a sudden it was like, oh, she's so cute. Oh, she's so little. And I remember taking progress photos of like me wanting to document my journey of like, am I getting my muscle back? Can I finally move more than five feet? And I remember I had this light bulb moment where I had decided that I was going to do a bodybuilding show and I had no business doing it. I did not have enough muscle to be on that stage, but I did it. And it gave me, it gave me focus for a moment to be like, Oh cool. Like look what my body can do. And I didn't even like the the stage presentation. I didn't like getting up there and actually being in the show, but I liked the work of it. Like, that was cool to me. It gave gave me purpose, right? And it gave me something to focus on that was outside of my current pain levels and my current, like, psychology and, like, the schematics of my pain. Like, it gave me an escape out of that. And I remember taking a photo after my show and realizing that the top part of my rib, which I had thought was body fat, I realized like, oh my God, my ribs are sticking out. And I had this moment where I was just, oh my God. At this point I still couldn't walk for more than half an hour. I needed help to get up out of bed. I needed help to get dressed still. Um and I remember being like, oh, I can't do this. And an article had come up across that my dad sent me about this woman in his town who had a very similar back injury, not as severe. Um, but at the time she had come back from that and she was the state the state record holder for squat. And I remember being like, oh my God, that's so cool. So I emailed her husband and I was like, hey, this is my story. I have no idea if there's any saving me. But what did you guys do? And he said, come on into the gym, let's take a look. And he was army, he was airborne. He is typical, like you walk in, he's bald headed and like a big guy. And at this point I was five five and Maybe 118 pounds. I was very, very little. And I'm being a little intimidated, like, he's going to snap me like a toothpick. Oh, my God. (laughs) And walking there, he's like, you're going to squat today. And I laughed in his face. I was like, you're out of your mind. I can't sit down without going numb, and you want me to squat? He's like, yep, you're going to squat today. And I was like, okay. At this point, I just submitted myself to it. If the doctors and the chiropractors and physical therapy wasn't doing anything, okay, let's see what you got. And that night was the first night in two years that I had slept through the night without waking up in pain. And I was hooked. I was like, okay, like let's do this gym thing. Like let's learn how to squat and bench and deadlift. I had never been in a weight room outside of like some hypertrophy stuff. And I was like, Oh, this is so cool. And I remember seeing a woman deadlift 300 pounds for the first time and being like, I, I can do that. Like people can do that. People's bodies can do that. And shortly after I met you and Melissa and coach sarni and i was being just absolutely floored that this physical realm even existed because it's nothing that i had ever been open to and then my entire focus shifted again instead of being how little and how well i fit into these boxes whether it's eurocentric beauty standards or thinness or being meek and and demure to know how much space can i actually take up like What, what am I allowed to do for myself that I don't need to rely on other people to do? How can I fit this mold? And I'm being so excited when I met you guys, because for me, it wasn't just the fact that I could see women lifting heavy things. It was like, oh my God, out of everything that they have probably had to go through, out of everything that I've had to go through, we can just all be in this space and I can just like revel in the fact that like there are powerful women in this world and I don't have to relegate myself to the meek and the mild and like the modest approach. Like my, my womanhood, my femininity can be vicious and violent and empowering and not fragile like a flower, but fragile like a bomb. I can hold that sort of weight and I can have that sort of presence. And that was a dynamic that I hadn't been open to Ever. I had never seen that depicted. I had never seen that. Even in the military, I had never seen women take up space with power and respect and authority in a way that commanded the room. And that literally changed a lot for me. I finally felt emboldened in myself and I started feeling comfortable speaking again, speaking out against certain things, checking people. And it was so pivotal but even from those moments like at the time I was working at vitamin shop and then I was a nanny um and there's been so many little shifts and the thing that I take from everything that has happened is it is okay to go through shifts but you have to give yourself grace to do it if I had held myself or relegated myself to one concrete, rigid idea of who I was, I never would have gotten to where I am now, not physically, emotionally, or mentally. And I think that in the current dynamic of things, people are being forced and faced with the opportunity to, when you are confronted with new information, you have to change. You can't just cling tighter to the nuances that you were, you were brought up with or the nuances of who you think you are. What do you do with that information? And that kind of has become my, my approach to everything now. What information can I take and how can I use this? How can I build on this? How can I make this more accessible for other people so that this is not just currently, right, with what I do currently, a white-dominated space in the fitness industry, right? My current objective is not as much as I would love to squat 400 pounds and deadlift five, that my objective is bigger than my current physical capacity. In what realm can I help amplify black voices? In what realm can I check people who look like me on the daily to help them grow in ways that they are no longer going to be violent? But if I had clung to that idea of being meek and mild and demure, my back injury only would have solidified that. So a lot of this is not clinging to who you think you are But being open to who you're being confronted with, your actual being.
0: Yes. This is, I mean, so many sound bites here. My favorite, I think, is definitely um, delicate like a bomb. That is so powerful. I often, I agree with you. And it was amazing getting to know you that first time you showed up at the gym and I had been so comfortable with just being the only girl that lifted heavy at that gym. And then we I met Melissa, and so it was just the two of us. And then you showed up, and I'm just like, who is this? <laughs> who is she? What is she about? You really didn't say much. Um, you had your facial expressions, which I love about you. Um, but I didn't really know who you were about. And I think you were also... Like what you're saying now, you were a little shy about showing and showing up and taking space. And as you started to get more confident in your lifts, I think your personality shone even brighter. And really, you are delicate like a bomb. If anybody knows you, you are (laughs) champion for others. You are not shy about what you think. And to think that you even had a time in your life that you were okay with being meek and demure... Um, shocks me but it's also not shocking because that is what society often um, showcases femininity femininity to be and I'm happy that we're in a time where women are being more and more outspoken we're emboldened to step into spaces where we were told we couldn't step into but the majority of the imagery for women it's still that um, we only fit so many boxes but powerlifting is so powerful no pun intended, <laughs> in the fact that <laughs> your your purpose there is to be as strong as possible. That's it, full stop. You don't have to fit a societal mold of beauty. You show up, you do the work, you lift the weight, and that's it. And knowing that, you control your destiny in a, in a sense, obviously there are extra factors that take place, but if you show up and you continue to lift the weight and you have good programming, you'll have good results and you don't have to deal with the subjectivity that certain other sports have. So I've always liked that. I felt like that's helped me grow my confidence. So it's great to hear, um, that was the same for you. Um, I wanted to ask you, what do you do now? And, um, How has these little pivots in your life made you more confident about what the future holds for you?
1: So right now I am the chief training officer for a company called Soldier Fit. So it's mostly a boot camp type brand, but we also do PT and my facility has an MMA facility in it. Um, So we really do everything from general boot camp fitness to we have pro level MMA fighters in our facility but for me the big ten of what I do is creating and cultivating a space that is encouraging and opening for anybody and anybody anybody and everybody not just the fit and the able bodied I have amputees I have people with cerebral palsy I have deaf members who come in and my staff has to be willing and able to train everybody no matter where they're at my job is to meet you where you're at and if your goal is ABCD I have to take you the rest of the way to finish the alphabet. And for me, that's really the biggest tenet of what I do is, yes, it's also membership sales and and teaching trainers how to train, but that seems to me, and I, I view that part as a very minute part of my job. My job is not just to teach people about the gym, but teach them how to take up space irrevocably and have no shame in it, right? I meet women all the time and young girls all the time. And as soon as I show them the gym, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable back here. I was like, yeah, but that's why I'm here, to make sure that you're never uncomfortable in a gym or in a space ever again. I want you to walk into a room and take up space and know that you belong here. So all of the processes that I've implemented, a lot of it is, you know, we do a free training session once a week for an hour where they can meet with a trainer and show them how to use the gym. We do small group sessions and yes, you know, unfortunately with the fitness industry, weight loss is always the golden goose, but that's not my focus ever. My focus is how are you going to validate yourself in this moment in the gym? How are you going to show up for yourself? Maybe in ways that you aren't quite comfortable yet doing it in other realms of your life. You know, my whole, my first push into the gym was, yes, for my physical ability so I could start walking again and, and moving again and hiking and running. I can't believe I just said that because we all know I don't run anymore. Um, <laughs> but the initial push was I was in a very emotionally and mentally abusive relationship. And my segue, my escape for myself was the gym. Mm. That is where I was like, I get a little bit of me time. I'm not relegated to serving him or family or taking care of that while juggling a back injury, while being in school, while trying to, you know, figure out life as it tornadoed around me. But it gave me a moment where my mental fortitude was resolved. I got to work on catalyzing the parts of myself and just show up for myself it can be as small as an hour a day or 30 minutes a day, whether it's journaling or going to the gym or sitting by yourself in a quiet house drinking your coffee, where you really get to grow into yourself. And I have these conversations almost daily with many people, men included, especially right now. I see I have a trend of like teenage boys coming through the facility and we have a lot of hard and good conversations about what it means to be, more than just a good athlete, but to be a good friend and a good partner. And how are we gonna show up for people who may not be as vivacious or as extroverted as you? How are you gonna make this safe space for them? And challenging those notions, you can see their minds start to work and be like, oh, this isn't the same for everybody. And because of my growing up and where we did, I mean, I was eight when we moved to Korea, I was affronted with that very, very early. And I was affronted with my whiteness very, very early where I feel like most white adults aren't confronted with them being white. They don't have that moment of, oh, I'm a white person until much later in life, right? Because the structures and the social structures of our world are designed around them. But if I can take that and have these conversations, even just in the gym, that little ripple effect of them having conversations with their friends or their family and everybody in my gym knows what's tolerated and what's not. I will cancel a membership if I hear some nonsense out your mouth. Um, But that really has the biggest pinnacle for me. So it's not just, yes, I work in the gym industry. Yes, I work in the fitness industry. Yes, I have to produce content about how to squat properly and how to do this and how to do that. But it's so much bigger than that. These motives are simply channels that we get to put ourselves under fire and figure out who we are and rebuild and rebrand and figure out how we're going to move through our world, but also a place where we can confront the not so nice parts about ourselves. And how are we going to grow out of this? If this is who I am today, and these are the people in the conversations that are around me right now, who am I going to be tomorrow? What will I do differently then To make sure I'm showing up appropriately for the people in my life who love me enough to check me. So, long, very long answer to what you just asked. (laughs) So, while I do a lot in the gym industry, I mean, you know, and obviously anybody who's listening to this probably doesn't know me personally, um, my nickname is mom. People love to talk about how I mom people. But because I can be your quote-unquote mom... I'm also gonna hold you to the highest standard ever and make sure that you know how to come correct when we are dealing with things that are outside of the gym because you bring all of that into my facility. All right, let's talk about how we're gonna get to the next level. And so yes, I work in a gym, but my biggest tenant is always education and not just in one realm, but in many realms, right? This has to be multifaceted because people are multifaceted.
0: So I think that it's funny that your first goal was music and you, your goal was to possibly be a music educator. And then you wanted to add your passions for different cultures and understanding your relationship with your whiteness and who you are in relation to other cultures and to create education and training around cultural competence in the military and then pivoting now Um, through your different smaller roles and other positions, now you've landed back into education in the realm of fitness. And so I think this is an example of how, although your goals might pivot in a seemingly great way, the underlying core of who you are and what you're meant to do still remains for a lot of us. And so you're still an educator. It just looks a lot differently than what you thought it would be. And I think that is amazing that that's been a consistent theme. It's just shown up differently. And all of those different experiences that you've had, your experience being injured and having to come out of that injury and having to face trainers or therapists that weren't able to accommodate you or treat your injury as well as they should have has now shaped what you view the fitness industry should hold as a standard. And you found a gym that um, caters to those goals and those experiences that you've had. And now you're not just educating trainers to train on a fitness level, but you're educating people to be people outside of their role in fitness. And I think this all goes back to how your identity was so tied to your position, but I, th- I liked what you said about student athletes, especially young uh, males, athletes. I've been to the gym and I've had a lot of student athletes that I've talked to and I'm an assistant coach myself and I often try to refocus the energy. It's great. You could be the best basketball player and even maybe make it to like the professional league, but we're even seeing now, especially with the current climate of COVID that those people whose identities were so wrapped up for many years into those roles of athlete or um, educator or whatever, life changes and shifts. And who are you outside of that role? And educating those young people now to be a whole person, right? Not just an athlete is essential to how they're going to interact with society. So I think you're doing an amazing job.
1: Oh, thank you. And it's funny, I actually have like this little epiphany while you were Talking, like, I had never spent enough time, I guess, to think about the different roles and how they correlated to each other, and I, until we were talking, I never picked up that I've been an educator in all of my roles, Um, which is really cool for me, you know, when people ask me, what's your dream job, What, what do you want to do if money isn't an object, I would love to get my PhD, and I would love to work at a university level. I have a passion for teaching. It just came out in a very different way. You know, for me, higher, my next level of academia wasn't an option, uh, one, because I couldn't walk, (laughs) Uh, but two, debt is a terrifying factor that we now have to reconcile with because our parameters and what higher universities cost is for this generation is so different from what it was for my parents and my grandparents, and that wasn't even an option for a lot of them. So, yeah. you know, hearing this role, I was like, oh, this is so affirming. <laughs> I love that. And like, she put this nuance together. And like, I kind of like, you showed me another side of myself, which is so dope. So thank you. That was very cool. I kind mean, for that,
0: me. that is why I love unpacking everybody's stories because there's always a common theme. There's always something that, in sharing our stories, we bring out that energy into the world. And also, we can. Those, those stories are received differently by the person that hears it. So someone listening to this podcast might pick up on a different theme than I even picked up on just listening now. And it might touch them in a different way than it touches me or touches the next person. So I'm so happy that you've opened up and shared with us. Um, now I wanted to shift before we end to just talking about your roses and thorns. It's something that you're sharing the highlights of your life. It could be this past week or during this time of quarantine. And then some low lights, some things that you might wanna work on or some things that may not have been great, but have strengthened you in, even in those low moments. So roses and thorns.
1: Ooh, are we gonna give a timeline on it? Do we want like the last couple months? Do we want roses and thorns in terms of like my entire life? Cause <laughs> I have so many stories. Take your pick. Okay. Um, I mean, roses are definitely, recently, um, being able to have downtime and appreciate downtime. I have Mm -hmm. always been the person who really struggles to sit down and sit still because I felt that if I sat down and something needed to be done and I didn't do it, I was letting friends or family or whoever was around me down by my stillness. And I really struggled with the concept of rest and the validity of rest because it made me feel like I was not serving somebody else. So I had a really nice, uh, come to your deity moment of uh, rest is okay. It is okay to sit and enjoy. Like my happy spot in my house right now is this corner of my couch with some coffee and like my plants. I, I, that's like very nice for me. Um, forms have definitely been, I have struggled, I feel recently with, um, how do I have the conversations that I want to have in a meaningful way where I am not just irate at the lack of empathy that we see from people, whether in social media or on our feeds or in person, when it comes to the state of our country right now, when we look at the pandemic, when we look at the police brutality, when we look at the number of people who have been killed, the number of black people who have been killed in the last couple of months, how do I stay centered enough to have these conversations with my fellow white people? And not drive myself mad. Um, I rose. I'm very good at uh, gathering (laughs) people and calling them to action and having these conversations. But definitely something I need to work on is a way of going through the conversation without emotionally draining myself to the point where I can't show up again. Right. I can't. I can't knock over the jug of water hoping that one drop resonates with one person when i have 365 days times the rest of my life that i need to show up and finding that that ability to understand when somebody is just trying to divert the conversation and throw the conversation just to reinforce their own biases is when i need to walk away um and it might just be the the Ital- Italiana in me. Um, I like to be like no no, you're gonna get this, so I'm gonna sit with you until you get this, and I need to be better walking away from certain conversations when it gets to a point that I am essentially talking to a wall. And so that's been something that I've been trying to trying to sit with, you know, like understanding is this a misdirection and a diversion tactic from people? Or are these really meaningful conversations that I've had? And I've had both. Um, Before I hopped on with you today, I was recording a podcast for The Dream Is Not Dead. It's a podcast through my work. And we were talking with Dr. Shirley Moody, who's a professor at Penn State. And we were talking about the dynamics of all of this. And she is a boxer. And she's a black woman. And being able to have the conversations where it's amplifying her voice and her work and getting a way to talk without the static from facebook or static from instagram comments that might derail the conversation but enable these conversations to happen and if somebody is listening to that podcast they they just get to listen they don't get to put their input in they have to sit with it and that has been something that you know is something i'm working on what and i love doing this work so how am i going to do it in a way that's meaningful, and that I can continue to do it long-term without emotionally derailing myself every single day because I work 70 hours a week and I just don't have the emotional wherewithal to get through the work and the emotional and all of this. So a lot of it is understanding that I am not um, rechargeable. (laughs) I'm not a battery that can just get plugged into the wall for five minutes and like be ready to go. So honoring that time of rest and like that time of like, it's okay to unplug, has been something that I've been working on. I mean, you know me fairly well. I I am pretty hard pressed to sit still, whether it's dishes needing to be done or somebody needing to be taken care of, or so that's been a, that's been a challenge for me.
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I think all of us can relate to, or those of us that are passionate about cultural competence, social justice, and racial justice. I think we've all been having those balancing acts of when to insert ourselves into discussions and when to hold back and being able to justify that holding back doesn't mean that you're complicit it's a conservation of our own energy and um, I agree that taking time away from social media or even away from people that you might normally casually converse with um, is necessary and it's vital to our mental and spiritual health because We can only give from a full cup, right? We can't just empty and empty and empty ourselves and expect to be giving anything of value to people. But um, I'm really happy that you talked about knowing yourself. You have to be able to know yourself, right? You know when you've given too much or you're starting to give too much. And then to be able to pull back, I think that's so important with – This current climate but even in anything especially again people that are service-minded we always want to insert ourselves we always want to help fix the situation but I did hear a quote from one of my good friends and she said that in these kind of conversations she chooses when to invest in people so those educational conversations that you're having with people if it's about social justice or helping them redirect their mindset about their own privilege she doesn't give that freely to everybody on social media or on Facebook. She chooses people in her life that she wants to invest in. Maybe it's a young person that she's known for years or a family member. And I, when she said that, I was like, "This is an investment. You wouldn't just give a dollar to everything. You would invest quality amount of money to something that you know could bring out good fruits to you financially." And it's the same is with social justice education, I choose to invest in young people that I work with at my school because I know the ripple effect that has in that community, and she chooses to invest in people that she knows, either family members that she knows work with different kind of communities, and she knows that ripple effect, and that they're really willing to work with her and receive that information. If people aren't willing to work with you, it's almost fruitless, right? And it's not worth (laughs) your time or energy
1: no absolutely and I think that the biggest thing I've had and the discussions that I've had with people is like like my question for you if we're going to flip the script is like what have you done lately that brings you joy like let's revel in the fact that what makes you happy what have you done that fills you emotionally spiritually mentally that is just for your own consumption and your own ability to sit with that doesn't do anything for anyone else and I think because of how Dynamic and how volatile the conversation has been to people who are new to the scene, right? Not to people who have been doing this social justice work or to people who have been aware of it, but especially to new white people coming to the table. Um, Like, I don't need to come to my black and POC friends and be like, hey, explain this. How are you feeling? How are you doing this? No, like, let me see you. Let me talk to you for a second. Get you, what brings you joy? What, what have you done today that's taking care of yourself? Those conversations are just as important, if not more important, on an individual empathy level. Then it is just to constantly yell into the echo chamber that is your Instagram account. Your Instagram account, you follow people and people follow you who likely have the similar viewpoints. So maybe hit pause for a second actually do something tangible that is good for the people around you so seriously like i'll get you like how are you what what have you done for yourself today that brings joy
0: well today not much (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's been a busy day but honestly preparing for this podcast and um being excited about the amazing women that i'm going to interview brings me a lot of joy it is still a project but My purpose is just to put goodness out there in the world in this form of these stories. Um, Other than that, I have an iPad and I have Procreate, so I've been finding a lot of joy in just drawing. I'm in no means an excellent artist, but that's not the purpose for me. For me, it's just a moment of time, whether it's 30 minutes or 20 minutes, that I'm just drawing something and pouring out creativity in a way that doesn't require any feedback. No one cares if I'm doing this. It's not a job or a project. And it's really freeing and nice. Other than that, I've been binge-watching shows like we all have been when we (laughs) have the time. Um, I am a huge proponent of watching House Hunters because it's so mindless. The lady that narrates it, her voice is so calming. And it really just turns my brain off before I go to bed. And I've created a routine to go to bed that I never did before. No matter how late I go to bed, I have my eye, my weighted eye sleeping mask. I have my lavender spray. And just that two-minute routine before I go to bed has really created pockets of time for just myself. I love that.
1: Oh, that's so self-affirming i love those moments for people and i'm glad that you carved yes. it out for yourself
0: i had to so anything wait, mindless
1: wait. oh my god yes but anything mindless i'm a, such a fan of we operate in a capitalistic society where we value productivity mm-hmm. and it's so nice to unplug and just like not feel the need to to jump it's so great so underrated
0: yes Pro tip, just put your phone on airplane mode. It's like <laughs> the best. <laughs> it's scary because I'm always like, who's messaging me? What is happening on Instagram? Da 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 da. I'm so addicted to my phone. But just putting it on airplane mode is like, I think I discovered that because it was accidentally. I think my like leg or something accidentally put it on airplane mode and I had an accidental hour of nobody buzzing at me and I was so at peace with that. And so now if I really need to shut my brain off, I just put my phone on airplane mode and I'm I'm not bothered. I'm not tempted to check anything. And it's just like you're giving yourself permission to shut down and not have to be responsive because while a lot of us are working from home people often feel like they have access to you 24 7 and that's not the case that wouldn't be the case if we were working tr- like how we were before this pandemic so 100
1: yeah i think boundaries are something that i didn't grow up knowing I'm not sure how this this was for you, but just, you know, moving frequently and always changing, like, Mm. boundaries really weren't a thing that I learned how to put into place until later, and I love boundaries. I love setting boundaries. I love turning, (laughs) recognizing the time and being like, nope, not right now, and clicking out even boundaries that you might set for yourself in terms of how you speak to yourself, how you show up Mm. for yourself. Boundaries are... That is a whole other podcast discussion, but I love me some boundaries.
0: Yes. I mean, I think, I think I'm think i still growing on that, especially sometimes I'll set boundaries and make excuses for them. And you're one person that's taught me to uh, not have to give an excuse for anything. If I say I don't want to do something, I don't want to do it. I don't need to give you a sob story as to why. If I said I was supposed to be off today and I'm not checking my emails well, I'm not checking my emails, you're going to get the response tomorrow and not apologizing for taking up time, taking time for yourself and respecting your boundaries. But again, it's always a work in progress. And I think people as you interact with different people, you have to recreate boundaries for them as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's about recreating boundaries, and also as a friend, like, you should always be willing to help enforce boundaries. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think the the most vivid memory I have of a time where you and I, <laughs> had a meet, I'm sure we were probably borderline about to get into a fight with somebody, um, had set a boundary <laughs> with Atlanta meet, where, you know, some mayo demon was popping off at the mouth behind us during weigh-ins, and... I remember looking at you and my first thought was, oh, no, not right now. I'm putting my foot down. And we both, like, volleyed. And it was just this moment of, for me, understanding that we don't have to necessarily talk about what just happened. But I can stand by and help you solidify boundaries by checking people around you and checking people around me. And because I had never lived really in a predominantly white space, that just wasn't something that I knew was the norm. I didn't know that people spoke like that or dealt like that. And I was like, what? This is what's happening? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. And the more, I mean, I don't even know. I just remember like both of us, I thought, Mike was going to have to come pull us out of jail because I was ready about to just throw down my belt and like elbow this man in his mouth. I was not
0: having it. Well, how yeah, have no but... fury than two women that just had to cut weight for a competition and it's was... hot and it's in Atlanta. <laughs> I mean, what was that guy thinking? <laughs>
1: well, that and then also like, yeah, we had just both cut weight. And I didn't die this time almost cutting weight. That first meet in the uh, West Virginia. Oh God. Bless that's you. And another Carla. That needs that's a whole story. We should have a whole weight cut chronicles.
0: <laughs> yes. Another part. Two but of this.
1: happened? But yeah, I think my favorite thing about boundaries, even outside of myself are in what ways do I get to show up for my, my people, my friends, my chosen family. Can I help solidify their own boundaries? Can Because a lot of times we're really bad about giving ourselves permission to sit. We're really bad about giving ourselves permission to set a boundary and hold to it. And I think for you and I, because we're service-based people, we often will break a boundary because it's in service to somebody else, so we justify it. We justify being emotionally worn out because we can now serve, right? That's good to serve.
0: Yes. And having
1: somebody look at you and be like, no, you said no, sit down, I will do it. And you're just like, oh. Oh, I get to sit. I can just sit here. And it takes probably like five minutes for your brain to shut off and stop like rattling around in your skull about how you need to be moving. But that, that is such a growth opportunity that I think we miss when we don't have full conversations with our friends or our family about, look, what, how, in what ways are you trying to grow and how can I help you? If it's doing less so I can be more present in my long life, great, girl, Let me help you help yourself. This is fabulous. I love those moments. But because we all have to show up for each other together, it can't just be about one person. We're not an island.
0: Yes. That is so beautiful. Well, I feel like we could talk on and on and on, but (laughs) I'm just going to end the conversation here. Maybe you'll come back and we can have a whole episode about powerlifting stories. But um, I just want to thank you again, Lauren, for hopping on and recording this podcast with me. It's so nice to just get to know you. And I've learned things about you, even in this short conversation, that I didn't know. And I've known you for years. So thank you again. If anyone wanted to follow along on your journey, how could they find you on the internet? (laughs) On the
1: interwebs. um, So my Instagram handle is lboogiebunny, courtesy of the powerlifting crew. Um, and on Facebook, I'm just Lauren Paranello. Uh, but I am never on Facebook. It is not my preferred choice of social media. So you need to find me definitely Instagram.
0: Okay. I'll add your Instagram handle in the show notes. And thank you again, Lauren. Have a great day.
1: You too. Thanks so much for having me on Ogechi.
0: Wow, Lauren is truly inspirational. I'm so honored to call her one of my closest friends, but I hope that in hearing her story, you are inspired in some way by the way that she pivoted and really redirected herself. I really had so many great takeaways from this time in talking with her about her story. My favorite has to be about how she is fragile like a bomb and not like a flower. That encompasses her personality personality so much. I'm so happy that you had the opportunity to hear about how as many times as she may have had to pivot, she still had that core of education and wanting to give back to her community in every role that she's taken on. I can't wait to see how her story continues to unfold, and I will include her information in the show notes. If you haven't, please like and subscribe to this podcast so that you can show this podcast some support, and so others can find it as well. Thank you again and have an amazing day that adds to your amazing story.